This webcast is for informational purposes only. The content provided is solely the opinion of the speaker and is not intended to and does not constitute medical advice or diagnosis, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The opinions and information provided during the webcast are for informational and discussional purposes only, and the speaker does not warrant or guarantee the accuracy, completeness, adequacy, or currency of the content provided. This webcast is not a substitute for professional psychological treatment, advice, assistance, or services. Should you or a family member need help with any of the matters discussed during the program, please contact a competent, licensed professional for assistance. Any use of the information in this webcast shall be at the user's own risk. The speaker does not assume any responsibility for errors, omissions, or contrary interpretations of the subject matter discussed during the program, and in no event will the speaker of this webcast be liable for any decision made or action taken in reliance upon the information provided. Welcome to Caught Between Generations. I am your host, Dr. Merrill Griff, and I am very excited to be bringing you this new show. If you're a caregiver for a parent, a spouse, a child, a grandchild, or even an aunt or a grandfather, then Caught Between Generations is the show for you. Most likely you have a job, a house to run, and people in multiple generations for which you care. What does this mean? I don't know. Actually, just reading this made me exhausted or wants me, I don't know, I want to run to the kitchen and eat cookies. You don't have the time to listen to multiple shows and read material from lots of different sources. You need one source for the information needed to manage all of these people in your life. It's not easy, but we can help. On Caught Between Generations, we will be discussing all things multi-generational with practical tips you can use right now to make your life easier. I hope you will be able to feel more peaceful, more organized, and more informed by listening to our interviews with guests who have experience in dealing with multiple generations. You are listening to Caught Between Generations, and I am your host, Dr. Merrill. Welcome to Caught Between Generations, and I am your host, Dr. Merrill Griff. Our guest today is Jessica Leahy. Jessica became a mother and a middle school teacher in the same year. She survived, and now she writes a bi-weekly column for the New York Times entitled The Parent-Teacher Conference and is a contributing writer for The Atlantic Magazine. On this show, we will be discussing Jessica's book, The Gift of Failure. Gift of Failure, a really interesting title and a very interesting book that addresses some very hot topics that have recently been in the news, such as rewards for participation and helicopter parents. I've just read Jessica's book, and it made me think through not only how I handled some of these issues as a parent, but also how I'm addressing many of these same issues now as a grandparent. Just how much risk and failure you allow your children to experience is a multi-generational concern. Welcome, Jessica, to Caught Between Generations. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, um, I enjoyed your book, and I'm glad to have you on the show. So, Jessica, how have we taught our children to fear failure? Well, I came at this uh, from my dual perspective as a teacher and a parent. And, and as a teacher, I was noticing that my students were simply becoming uh, more afraid over time. Uh, I've been teaching since I was pregnant with my older son, and he's 16 now. So for quite a while. And, and you know, I 
my first thought was, okay, well, this is all about the parents. You could blame the parents, blame the parents. And then I had to kind of stop for a second and realize, oh, crud, I'm a, I'm a parent too. And in the same community as my, my students. And so clearly I'm complicit in this as well. And I think what I was starting to notice in the classroom is that kids were just so afraid to look like they didn't know everything all the time, like they weren't good at everything right off the bat, like they didn't know the answer. Um, and, and it was really hindering my ability to teach them. And once I noticed that in my students and sort of looked over at my own kids, I realized my kids, you know, were afraid to go into stores on their own and talk to people. My younger son couldn't tie his own shoes. Just all these little things that I had kind of I hadn't fostered in them and I had actively undermined their, um, their independence and, and only because, you know, I was, it was easier for me to do it the way I was doing it. And I, I had a pretty short view of things. What do you think the children were fearful of? I mean, you're saying the kids were fearful that if they didn't get the answer right. I mean, what do you think they were actually afraid of? Of not looking smart. I mean, they, if you, if you look at, if you, these kids have such a, a view of themselves, that, uh, such a fixed view of themselves that their parents and their teachers and everyone around them has kind of built them up as, oh, you're so smart, you're so talented, you're so creative. And the problem with that is that if you look at um, the work of Carol Dweck on her growth and fixed mindset uh, research, and that's all in her book, uh, Mindset, which is uh, every parent and teacher should have to read that book. But when we do that to kids, we set them up to think that they sort of are the, they are the smarts. They are the thing they were born with. And instead of believing that they can become smarter, the harder they work and that if they make mistakes, that's all a part of the learning. Um, when we, you know, when we stick these labels on kids, we kind of screw them up and, um, yeah, not looking smart is sort of most of my students' greatest fear. So, but it, I think as a parent, or as a grandparent, it's very, very hard to judge, you know, how much risk, how much failure to allow. I mean, there's a big difference between failure on the soccer field and failure in school. I mean, mm -hmm. how, do, how do you judge that? I think it's very hard. I think the first thing that we have to do is back up for a second and realize that our barometer for acceptable levels of, of fear and worry and risk has shifted incredibly far over in, uh, in the past, you know, generation or so, you know, things that my parents willingly let me do and, and things that were really beneficial to me, like, you know, hanging out in the woods all day with, you know, the do a dog and a horse and my friends and, and they didn't even know where I was. That's, that just petrifies me to think about, you know, letting my 12-year-old kid do the same thing. Um, so I think it, at, at first we really have to back up and say, okay, well, maybe my my acceptable level of risk is a little bit off the charts. Uh, the other thing is that it's really going to depend on every person. I mean, I think I would like my kids to know where an acceptable level of risk is and sort of realize that that changes with their level of competence. Like, you know, if they had a friend over who'd never climbed a tree, my acceptance, my acceptable level of risk for that kid is pretty low, but my kids have been climbing trees for a long time and they know what a dead limb looks like. And they know what a limb looks like that won't hold their, hold their weight. Um, so really as kids become more competent, 
the acceptable level of risk goes up. Um, and whether that's, you know, in the book, there was this mom who, you know, when it looked like her son might fail out of school, she said, fine, let's go look at the school you're going to have to go to if you do fail out of school. And they spent the day at this other school in the district where he was going to have to go. And um, she let him make up his mind about where he wanted to be and how much he was going to care about school. And it changed his life. That that moment of her seizing, you know, the scariest thing on the horizon and letting him face it, you know, head on was really frightening for her, but it, it made a big difference in this kid's life. I, I guess what I'm struggling with, and although I agree with, with most of what you wrote, mm-hmm. is is here's, let's say, a reality of my life. So I have a granddaughter who lives in the New York area, and she was looking at um, going into a good preschool. Mm-hmm. So it meant she had to take a standardized test. It meant she had to go through 10 play interviews. Her parents had to go through interviews. Um, it, I mean, it was really a, a surprise to me, but that is the reality of, of what they were doing. And so were we coaching her? Yes. <laughs> I mean, did she feel like she couldn't fail? Well, probably. Um, and it, I think it only gets worse as the kids get older. Well, and even if you're not telling her that uh, she really was not allowed to fail in that situation, she got that from you anyway. I mean, kids are smarter than we give them credit for. So they're, you know, we can tell them anything we want, but they, they really understand more what we do and, and how we act about things than what we say. So, you know, she, she knew what the stakes were probably going into that, that admissions process. Right. So I guess what I'm getting at is that maybe as a family, and I'm asking the question, you mm-hmm. need to sit down and think through, you know, what are really, what do you really want to achieve? Mm-hmm. And then what really is an acceptable level of failure? Right. No, no, I mean, I think that's, if you're going to change the way that you do your parenting, a very good conversation with your spouse, partner, whatever is, uh, is, necessary at the beginning. I mean, you can't launch into this unilaterally. And and that was one thing that I did with my husband once, you know, when once I realized that I was really being overprotective of my kids and really not undermining their competence and, and not giving them opportunities to succeed and, and take some risk, um, you know, I had to have that conversation with my spouse first. Um, he tends to be more careful than I am. He's a physician. He's worked in an emergency room. He knows the worst case scenarios for everything. And when it comes to physical risk, he's, he's much more careful about things than I am. So we had to, you know, we had to have that conversation. We had to decide where the line was. And, and that's a very personal decision in your family. Um, and it, you know, it's the same thing when people ask me about letting kids quit music lessons. I mean, that sounds like a, low risk thing. But for some families, that's a huge deal. Um, in my house, it wasn't a big deal because music wasn't so much a priority in my family, but in other families it is. So where you decide you're not going to, um, really get in there and, and try to direct your kid is going to depend very much on your family's priorities. So, you know, you're, your daughter or son, whoever the parents are of, of this grandchild, you know, that could be just the, if, if the stakes are that high for education, that could be the one area where they decide there just isn't going to be any room for um, mistake, making mistakes in this in this admissions process. But there are plenty of other areas to choose from. And, and I think that's what I was trying to get at. And that is that there are some areas where the amount of failure, I think, that you'll, you know, 
actually accept is more limited than other areas. Now, I think in a child's daily life, they make a lot of mistakes. And perhaps the reaction to that is different. You know, it's like, it's okay. You know, you made a mistake, you know, what, let's move on. I mean, what are your suggestions for that? For instance, when you're doing homework with a child? Well, I think right there, let's stop that and go back to your last sentence, which was when you're doing homework with a child, you are not doing homework. Your child is doing the homework. And while you may be present in the house, I, I hope you're not sitting there with the child doing the homework. I mean, there, um, one of the big, one of the big issues that people tend to have when we talk about the, the work that I do is, oh, well, this is permissive parenting or this is very hands off parenting. And it's not. You're there. You're there and your child knows you're there and your child knows you're a support, but you're not going to intervene until your child has had a chance to get frustrated and then learn on their own how to move past that frustration on their own. So if you have a child where you have been sitting with them and you have been doing your meaning like the plural, your homework um, for a long time, that's going to be a harder thing for you to, to turn around and start doing. But it's good for kids to know that adults have their own lives and their own things to do in the other room while they're doing their thing, which is their homework, um, you know, maybe a room away. Um, I think a little pronoun checking, you know, our homework, our college application, that kind of thing. I think pronoun check is going to be a little, is going to be important just for frame of reference uh, in this situation. No, I, I would agree with you. What about chores? Well, A, I don't call them chores. I think chores it makes it sound like it's, it's a job outside of, um, you know, something that, you pay a hired hand to do. Um, I, I prefer the term um, household duties or household responsibilities. There's a quote in the book from a, um, a child therapist who agrees with me, who says, you know, household things that you do around the house are part what you do as part of being a family. Um, they're not things you get paid for. They're not, um, it doesn't make you special because you did them. It's everyone gets to, everyone has to do the things that are necessary for running a family. And when you're very, very small, that could be very small things like putting your toys away after you play with them or helping ball up socks and put them in a drawer, um, helping move laundry. And when you're three, you, a little kid can help you move pieces of laundry from the washer to the dryer. And as they get bigger, they get to take a more and more active role in helping the family run day to day. Um, and there's in the book, there's really specific sort of suggestions for different age groups and, and what might be appropriate. I think the term that I read in the book was family contribution, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I just loved. I thought it was, I thought it was, it just, that reframe just, just was great. So it's no longer a chore. This is your family contribution. I thought, I thought and, that was great. Well, and someone asked me recently about, you know, well, how do you get past the hemming and the hawing and I don't want to do this and blah and complaining that I don't know that that ever ends. Um, you know, there's a job that my younger son is responsible for all fall long, all late summer and early fall long. And he hates it. And, but it's, uh, it's tied into very much what he must sort of what he enjoys doing. So the job is, is that we have three apple trees and the apples 
this year in New Hampshire, where I live, have been insane. Like branches are broken because there's so many apples just weighing down the trees and they fall on the ground. And when they fall on the ground, the wasps come. And when we mow the lawn, we mash them up into applesauce and the backyard becomes this disgusting apple mush uh, area. It's just gross. So his job is before the lawn gets mowed, he has to pick up all the apples and either bag them up for um, friends, pigs or bears or whatever, or they have to go in the woods. And he hates it. But I make applesauce. He likes to play in the yard with no shoes on. So this is just something that has to get done. And if he doesn't do it, someone else is going to have to do it. And it's just part of of our family life. Um and so someone said, well, how do you get past the hemming and the hawing? And I said that, you know, if, if a job is a kid's job on a regular basis, it kind of just becomes an accepted part of the routine or at least something that they're likely to complain about less often, um, whether that's feeding the dog every day or bringing wood in every day or d- getting the mail every day or whatever that thing is. So I think talking about children hemming and hawing and not wanting <laughs> to do things brings us into the discussion about the use of reward systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been a lot in the news about this, especially mm-hmm. um, in terms of participation trophies, mm-hmm. um, which has become a very popular thing. And people have a lot of strong opinions about uh, mm-hmm. both pro and con. What are your feelings about reward systems? Uh, well, in, on specifically on participation trophies, I can't remember who said this. I, I think it was Vicki Hofler who wrote, uh, Duct Tape Parenting. She said, you know, watch a kid when they get a participation trophy, a trophy that they know everyone else on the team got. And then watch what they do with that trophy as opposed to a trophy that they really earned because they worked really, really hard and, and they showed, um, improvement somewhere. Um, that trophy, you know, tends to end up on the floor. It ends up broken. It goes out with the trash and all that plastic stuff. Kids get that everyone got it. And so it's fairly worthless. And as opposed to, you know, a trophy that really required some work, some evolution, some pushing through frustration, not just showing up with a pair of cleats. Um, so that's how I feel about the trophy thing. I think they're absolutely worthless. And I think that the kids know that they're worthless, which makes it even worse. In terms of participation, you know, in terms of how we grade kids, how we, how we praise kids, you know, I really wish we would take our focus off of those things like trophies, grades, scores, all of that stuff, um, without being, you know, Pollyanna about it. I really wish we could push our focus back toward the process of learning or becoming better at a sport or whatever that thing is, as opposed to the end product, because the process never ends. I mean, I was listening to, um, I was listening to a musician recently talk about why he practices every single day because perfection in his mind is never really attainable, but you keep trying for it. And so, you know, that process of getting better is a daily thing we do. And I wish we could focus on that. And that process of learning is going to be so much more important to a kid if that's where our focus is, as opposed to the grade or the score or the whatever that thing is. What about reward systems, though? I mean, for instance, Mm -hmm. parents paying for (laughs) children to do their family obligations. Right. Well, that's in terms of parents pay kids for all kinds of things. As I have found out recently, a lot more, uh, way more parents than I thought pay kids for grades. Um, You know, the research is really clear on this. 
extrinsic motivators like grades, like trophies, like money, um, not only do they undermine a kid's uh, well, anyone's motivation to do the thing for the sake of the thing itself, it undermines creativity as well. So, you know, especially if you have something like, um, you know, learning should be a creative endeavor. In the best possible world, it is a creative endeavor. So by paying kids for grades or by valuing the grades above the learning, what you're basically doing is undermining the kids' interest in learning and the creativity they will apply to that learning. And that's a disaster. Do you find as a, as a teacher that paying kids for grades works, that it's effective? Um, paying kids, well, that extrinsic motivator of paying kids for grades or giving a reward for something can be, can boost things. It can be, if you do it once, if you do it intermittently at the very beginning, or if a kid loses interest in something and you want to try to turn that around, a reward like that can have a very short term benefit. But over time, that reward is going to lose its efficacy. It's going to lose its value to the kid. So unless you're going to either, you know, abide by an inflationary rule or you're going to, um, you know, just sort of realize that basically what you're doing is setting yourself up for a long-term failure, um, in your, in the way you, uh, approach, you know, trying to motivate your kid, it really is not a good plan. It really does not work over the long term. One of the things you say in the book is that the less you push your children to success, the more they actually learn. Can you explain this? Yeah, learning is something that if you've ever read, for example, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's Flow or you've ever read Edward Deasy's uh, work on the science of human motivation, the more we push and the more we mess with intrinsic motivation and, and pushing actually does a couple of things that, um, whether that's rewarding, which is also pushing, controlling, surveying, you know, or, you know, a lot of surveillance over kids. Um, in order to be intrinsically motivated, you need three things. You need to feel autonomy, which is, you know, control over the details of what you're doing. You need to feel competent. And you need to feel connected. And connected when we're talking interpersonal really means supported and loved. When we nag kids constantly, we're not only undermining that connection that they feel to us and the support, the feeling that they're supported, we also mess with the autonomy. And we also sort of, you know, it messes with their sense of their own competence. So we're sort of coming at coming at intrinsic motivation and, and cutting the feed all three of the legs out from under it when we when we're nagging and when we push and when we oh have you done the homework yet? How did you do the homework? Let me see it. Let, you know, is it in your backpack? You know, is, how did you do it? Where are you gonna do it? Um what order are you going to do your classes in? You know, all of that kind of stuff that constantly being on top of kids undermines that connection end of thing more than anything else. Yeah. As a therapist, you know, one of the things that I always dealt with with kids was, you know, internal versus external control. Mm -hmm. And the kids who felt responsible for things, who had internal control, mm -hmm. were actually more successful and, mm -hmm. and they could really change. Um, but the kids who felt as though everything was external. Right. And everyone else controlled it. Thus, everyone else was at fault. They were never at fault, never responsible. Had a lot more difficulties, uh, especially in school settings. I think. Yeah. I was looking at a study just the other day on, on, uh, boys and aggression and bullying. Um, and I can't cite the study, unfortunately. I, I was looking at it a couple of days ago and it was talking about the, the sense of powerlessness, um, that, they found in boys who bully other kids that 
a sense of powerlessness leads to so many negative things. And when we, you know, we, one of the things that, uh, that I was told by a whole bunch of people early on, you know, when you have a toddler, you say, you don't say, what color would you, hat would you like to wear today? You say, would you like the red hat or the blue hat? You give toddlers an acceptable amount of control over something. And as kids get older, you have to continue to give them more and more and more control over the things that are important in their lives, like school and their social life. Otherwise, you're really taking away um, any potential for them to be invested um, in school or in their social lives or whatever that thing is. Jessica, what do you think is the role of grandparents in in this whole process of risk and failure? You know, it's really interesting. Since the book came out, I've been signing a lot of books for grandparents. And um, they constantly, I keep getting asked, what do you think the best way for me to give this book to my child is? Um, there, It seems to me that there are a lot of grandparents out there concerned about their children's, um, their, how their children are overparenting their own, uh, the grandchildren. Um, but the neat thing that I found uh, in the study, uh, in one study about about sports, it's in the sports chapter, is um, kids and grandparents have a great, have gr- such a great potential in their relationship because all of the things that parents are doing to undermine the great parts of the relationship, like the nagging and the cajoling and all of that kind of stuff, tends to not be present um, in the relationship with grandparents. I mean, they're, you know, any grandparent, my mom loves to mention this to me, you know, it's just so great spending time with the grandchildren because I'm kind of not responsible for the end product in terms of like, I'm not that concerned about whether or not he, you know, what he's doing looks good to other people. I just like being around him. And the study I loved in the sports chapter said that um, this one coach interviewed kids, um, actually really high level college athletes about what their favorite and least favorite thing about doing youth sports was. And they said their least favorite aspect of youth sports had been the ride home in the car with their parents implying that there are some pretty negative conversations going on in the ride home with their parents in the Mm -hmm. car. But they said their favorite thing was when their grandparents would come to watch them play. Um, There's something really amazing and important in that statement that grandparents are offering kids connection free of strings, free of the um, all the other things that parents seem to ask in in exchange for that connection. And that's, that is an invaluable thing for kids. I think as a grandmother, I think that's very true. I, I, I think you feel like the pressure is off. Mm-hmm. Um, and what your mother says is very true. You don't <laughs> feel responsible for the end product anymore. Um, and so you just relax. And for some reason, also, you're not thinking about many, many other things that have to get done. You can just, in effect, be mindful and just focus on your grandchildren and, and just enjoy them. Well, what's been interesting to me also is the number of grandparents who've reported that um, uh, they see in their grandchildren gifts that other people, people might view as a little, a little weird, a lot, a little, uh, maybe non-conforming. Um, my mother loves to talk about the fact that, you know, what she values most in her grandchildren are their individual strengths that may not have anything to do with whether they're good in the classroom or on the soccer field or whatever, you know, grandparents are free to just revel in the things that are wonderful about their grandchildren without worrying about whether or not those strengths are going to reap benefits, you know, 30 years down the road. 
That's true. Jessica, thank you so much. Um, <laughs> you've, you've really been a great guest. You're listening to Caught Between Generations, and our guest has been Jessica Leahy, the author of The Gift of Failure. Jessica, how does someone order your book, read your articles, get in touch with you? Well, you can Google my name, Leahy, L-A-H-E-Y, and The Atlantic or The New York Times. Alternately, you can just go to jessicalahey.com and all of my articles are there and as are all the links to buy the book wherever you might like to purchase books. Okay, that's great. Once again, it's Jessica Leahy and The Gift of Failure. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. My takeaway today is not a task or something you can do, but rather it's a saying, something you can say to yourself when you begin to feel that you are not allowing your child to take some degree of risk and experience failure. It's a personal mantra for parents and grandparents. It's actually an African proverb that says, smooth waters do not make for good sailors. You know, all of us wish smooth seas for our children and grandchildren, but deep in our hearts, we know that life has many bumps in the road and that the waters are never smooth. It is the person who has ridden out the storm successfully that has faith in their own abilities to manage their own life. They have trust in their own abilities to succeed, and they have that sense of inner pride in their own competency that all of us wish for our children and grandchildren. This is Dr. Merrill, and you have been listening to Caught Between Generations. Remember, smooth waters do not make for good sailors.